catch a plane to Utah. We are working with a church plant out there in Morgan County, a county that has zero Christians in the county. It's the least Christian county in the country. In God's providence, he is allowing Fisherville Church to partner with that church plant. So be praying for the bevels. The Depews are already out there. They kind of combined this trip with a vacation. They drove out there. So please be praying for our missions effort in Utah. We're sending another team to South Africa, partnering with the church there to reach an unreached people group known as the Swana people. They will be leaving in early December, so be please be praying for that, that team as well. And in that regard, in two weeks, we're having lunch on the grounds just to remind you. And the money that you would spend eating out that day, if you would just put in our little kitty so we can minimize the cost for some of these people that are going on these mission trips. So if you eat at McDonald's, throw in 10 or 15 bucks. If you eat at Roos Chris, a couple hundred bucks. So, so please be praying for these teams and pray for two weeks. I would love for this to become a tradition for us in the fifth Sunday uh, every time we have that. Uh, but we, we want to see that it's going to be a, a fruitful time as well. So let's pray for that. Well, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text that challenges us to be God's people, to be kingdom people, gospel people. Give us ears to hear today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On August the 28th, just some two and a half weeks ago, the nation remembered uh, the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights March on Washington, D.C. I read an extensive book on that last year. And the speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave, I have a dream. Very famous, well-known speech, well-done speech. But just some two and a half weeks later, coming off the high of that moment in Washington, D.C. and all the hopes that stemmed from that speech, a bomb was set off at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, And today is the 50th anniversary of that bomb. In fact, the bomb was set at 10.22 a.m., 11.22 Eastern Time. So even as we speak, we think about the 50th anniversary of that bomb being set off in a service where four young girls were killed. Many believe that that was the most heinous act in that very violent time in our nation's history, the most heinous act in the civil rights movement, though the movement itself was not violent. Martin Luther King Jr. was anti-violence, but the people that pushed against him were very violent because of sinful racism. Well, Timothy George writes about that day in one particular person. Incidentally, Timothy George was the interim at Fisherville Church in the 70s. Some of you may remember him. But he speaks of a certain woman, Carolyn McKinstry, who was there that day the bomb was set. It was a gray and overcast Sunday morning on September 15, 1963. Some rain had fallen in the night, but no one knew that the heavens would weep again before the day was done. It was Youth Sunday. 
at the church and Pastor John Cross had announced that he would preach a sermon titled A Love That Forgives. Isn't that ironic? Based on Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Carolyn Mall, age 14, the Sunday school secretary, hurried to fulfill her responsibilities. In the brief interval between Sunday school and the morning worship service, Carolyn stopped by the girls' restroom and spoke to her friends, Cynthia Wesley, Addie Mae Collins, and Carol Robertson, all age 14, and Denise McNair, who was age 11. She left the restroom, walked up the stairs to the church office, and answered the ringing phone. A man's voice said simply, three minutes. He hung up and Carolyn felt confused. She walked into the sanctuary where the clock hanging on the wall indicated that the time was 10.22 a.m. Central Time. Then she heard the blast. Boom. For a second she thought it was thunder or a lightning strike and then she realized it must be a bomb. She vividly remembers two things from that horror-filled moment. The sound of feet scurrying past her to get to the exits and looking up at the stained glass window, the same one that had brought her such comfort when she looked into the face of Jesus at her baptism. The window was still intact, all except the face. Jesus' beautiful face was gone. As I read in that book on the civil rights last year, there was a lady there named Maxine McNair who was a school teacher. And she searched desperately for her daughter Denise, her only child, in fact. And uh, she came across a sobbing man and she screamed, Daddy, I can't find Denise. And the man replied, She's dead, baby. I've got one of her shoes. Well, today, 6th Street, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham is having a day to commemorate uh, the 50th anniversary of that bomb that shook the church. That, and, but really, in the providence of God, um, made great strides in the civil rights movement because people, for the first time, saw the heinousness of the racism. You know... That bomb reminds us that things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. You know, Romans 5 verse 21 tells us that sin reigns in death. Sin reigns in this fallen world. Because the world is under the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as Paul says. He is the ruler of this age. And so it shouldn't surprise us, okay, when we see these kind of wicked acts. In fact... Given the wickedness and the sinfulness of man, it should surprise us that we don't see this more often. That's the reason we can remember the 50th anniversary of this wickedness is because it doesn't happen that often. And the reason it doesn't happen is because of God's common grace, His restraining grace. And given the fact that we as believers are not fully sanctified... Though we're still in mid-story, if you will, it should not surprise us when we see sin present in the church. Now, not to that degree that we see 
in 16th Street Baptist Church, but sin nonetheless. But what should shock us is when that sin goes unchecked in the church. You see, we as believers have a new orientation towards sin. We of all people recognize the heinousness of sin because of the cross. The cross is the event of all events that demonstrate the heinousness of sin. The spotless, undefiled, righteous Son of God taking the wrath of God on sin. And so the cross itself reminds us of the heinousness of sin. And we understand as believers that at the most fundamental level, sin is the belittling of God's name. That's what sin is. And we understand as a result that those who were under sin, those who commit sin are under the wrath of God. And that's why we as believers should take sin very seriously. You see, we as believers have been delivered from that wrath. It's not because we are better than anyone else. It's because we've embraced the son who took the wrath in our place. But now as the trophies of this grace, we are now the instruments by which this gospel of grace is extended to a lost and dying world. That's why we must take sin within our midst very, very seriously. And that brings us to our text here. And the first point that Jesus would give us here in verse 1 is that the disciples of Christ must take their own sin seriously. Look with me in verse 1. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin. That's one word. The word is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal. Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. At this point in the narrative, Jesus is just weeks out from the crucifixion. Just a few weeks. And we saw that he began to make his way to Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51. In chapter 9, verse 51, it says, He set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus came to die. That's why the Messiah, the Savior came. He came to die. He came to take the wrath of God for sinners. And so he has been setting his face towards Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, verse 28, we're not far out. He arrives into Jerusalem. In what is known as the triumphal entry. It will be the Sunday before his crucifixion on Friday. And so he's on this journey... And as we've been seeing in this portion of Luke, he's kind of navigating between two groups. He's directing his message to two groups. First of all, he's been speaking to the disciples, the followers of Christ. Now, what is a disciple? It's not someone who just has an intellectual understanding of Christ. That's non-saving faith. A disciple is someone who has the knowledge of Christ, but has the conviction that Christ is his or her only hope and has committed his or her life to him, repented of his sin and trusted in Christ in desperate faith. That's what a disciple is. We have many church members in America who aren't true disciples. 
which means they're not truly Christians. A disciple is a follower of Christ, committed to Christ. Every area of his life is coming under the rule of Christ. Jesus has been speaking to the disciples, but he's also been speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They were kind of like the guardians of the perverted Jewish religion of that day. So he's juxtaposing what a true disciple is with this perverted understanding of religion expressed by the Pharisees. And so at this point in John or Luke verse seven, chapter 17, he's been addressing the Pharisees since chapter 16 verse 14. And now he's going to direct his attention back to the disciples. He kind of uses these two groups as foils against one another. Now with these words in verse 1, temptations to sin, scandalon are sure to come. It's very clear, most certainly, in fact, that Jesus has in view the Pharisees. He's not talking about the real outward pagans here. He's talking about religious people. Because he's comparing the disciples with the Pharisees. He's comparing the Pharisees with the disciples. He says, so there is sure to come temptation, a scandal from Religious people. By their, by their teachings and by their, uh, their living, they were leading others astray. Now, what's the main issue with the Pharisees? Well, if you, if you do a study of Luke, we saw in chapter 7 that they rejected the purposes of God. How would you like that put on your tombstone? He rejected the purposes of God. We've seen in chapter 12 that they were hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? Let's review. A hypocrite portrays something on the outside that he or she knows is not a reality on the inside. So hypocrisy is when there is a distance between what we are on the outside and who we really are on the inside. We also saw in the last chapter that they, they did their religious acts to be justified before men. They lived for the praise of men. Do you get that? They are using God to receive praise themselves. They are using Him. They are using their religion to receive justification and human approval. And they also says, Luke says, that uh, they loved money. Which tells us, by their lives, they were communicating that God isn't enough. God isn't sufficient. We need material things to add on to Him. They were esteeming the gift over the giver. Now that is a scandal. Because when people see that in your life... They begin to believe God is not enough. God is not sufficient. We need more than God. That was the scandal that was being laid out here. Symbolically, this idea of scandal, this, this temptation to sin that you see in the text in verse 1, could literally be translated as a trap. They were setting traps by their perverse self-righteousness. Not a true righteousness, a paraded righteousness in order to receive 
pats on the back by other people. It was a trap. In fact, the same word is used in 1 John. In 1 John 2 verse 10, John says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In other words, the evidence that you abide in Christ, who is the light, is seen by the fact that you love your brother. Agape love. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. There's the same word. Do you see? The way you overcome this temptation to sin in your own life And the way you overcome in being a trap to others is by your love. The Pharisees had a loveless religion. There are many churches today that are filled with religious people who've never drank or smoked anything in their life and are as committed to the choir as anyone. And they're loveless. That's a scandal, Jesus would say. In other words, these traps, these stumbling blocks come from religious people because of lovelessness. And I'm not sure what kind of woe could await this kind of person. Jesus doesn't tell us. But he says, woe to the one through whom they come. If you are a scandal as a religious person, People know that you identify with God. People know that you identify with Jesus. But they don't see love in your life. They don't see someone who believes that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is sufficient. That Jesus is your portion. Jesus says that's a scandal. And he says, woe to you. In fact, Jesus says something I would never dream of saying. But that's why he's the Lord and I'm not. He says it would be better to die a violent death than to promote that kind of scandal among what he calls the little people, the young ones, the little ones. Notice in verse 2. He says it would be better for him. It would be better... For her, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. It would be better to die a violent drowning, by violent drowning, than to cause these little ones to sin by your loveless religion. Now, who are the little ones? Well, a lot of people think that it's children. Well, there's no children present. It's the new converts. It's the new believers. It's the tax collectors who've come to Christ. It's the sinners who've come to Christ. That's who the little ones are. It's a a tender way of describing the new believer. And he says it would be better that you violently die than to promote this kind of scandal in the community of God. I mean, that is remarkable language. And we can do this with our loveless attitudes and our loveless actions. But there's other ways to do it as well. 
You know, that's the way the Pharisees did it. We can do it with our, our negative, complaining spirit. Do you know people in churches who, when you talk to them, you know something negative is coming? You know something critical and slanderous is coming. And it sets a bad spiritual example for those who hear it. It causes you to be discontent or malcontent. It causes you to be suspicious of other people when religious people act that way. We do it by our slanderous words. You know what slander does? It steals someone else's reputation. And that's why so many people are appalled at the evangelical church. Because they hear and see the same things in the church that they hear and see, you know, at the country club. Think of all the moral and the financial and sexual scandals that have rocked the church, even from the leadership. We can do it with our indifference. Indifference to God. There are plenty of people who go to church every week, but during the week they're indifferent to the things of God. You don't hear God coming off their lips. They know nothing about the Word of God. They're indifferent to people. God gives them an opportunity to share the gospel, and they're indifferent to those people. And I've heard even unbelievers say, if they really believed what they claim to believe, why don't they tell me? There's a famous YouTube clip with a celebrity who says that. He says, I'm an atheist myself, but I wish these Christians would tell me about Jesus if they really believe that apart from Jesus, I'm going to hell. Indifference. Idolatry. We're scandals to people because of our idolatry. Where we esteem things and other people are events and material things above Jesus. We do it by our immorality. The divorce rate is as high in the church as it is outside the church. It's a scandal. I mean, you think about all those scandals that have rocked the church. Wouldn't it have been better that the people have died before they committed those scandals? That's what Jesus would say. Now, Jesus says, linked with this responsibility, this responsibility to take our own sins seriously. He also says that we have a responsibility to take our brothers' and sisters' sins seriously. Now, that's kind of countercultural, isn't it? Because when we take each one of our sins seriously, we go, what business is it of you? That's the hyper-individualism that we see in our churches today. But that's foreign to what Jesus says. Notice what he says in verse 3. And we're going to come back to this next week. You know, I was working on this at the end of the week, and, and I was going to preach verses 1 to 6, and I said, you know what? This, this is too important. So we're going to break this up into two parts, because I, I don't have time to deal with forgiveness here. We'd be here till 2 o'clock. All right? So we're just going to deal with the first part here today. We have a responsibility to one another. 
So we take our own sin seriously, and yet we're also to take our brother's and sister's sins seriously as well. Look with me in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. It's kind of like a, um, a transition verse. You pay attention to yourself with regard to your own sin. You pay attention to yourself with regard to how you address the sins in your brothers and sisters. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And we'll just read it out, but we'll just stick to that for the rest of the day. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What I want us to finish our time today looking at is this idea of rebuking sin in our brothers and sisters. I mean, this is virtually missing in our churches today. Rather than going to a brother or sister in love for the sake of their spiritual health. We live in comfortable, culpable silence. But Jesus says if your brother sins, rebuke him. Of course, the goal of rebuking, okay, is not to get it off your chest. It's not to get your point across or to win your argument, or to prove yourself that you're right. The goal of rebuking is your brother's repentance. Your brother's restoration. Restoration with God and restoration with the community of the people of God. Until that's your goal, you're not ready to rebuke. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, Brothers, if any of you are caught in a trespass, let he who is spiritual restore them. Okay? That's a very important principle. Now, does that mean every time someone sins, we re rebuke them? Do we become the sin police? Hey, brother, I heard that you went to a certain movie that uh, is kind of a little off color, and I just needed to... Rebuke you for that. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Though we shouldn't go to those kind of movies. I'm not advocating that. I may rebuke you, but probably not. I mean, isn't there a place for covering over a multitude of sins? Didn't Peter say that? Isn't there a place for bearing with one another in love? Didn't Paul tell us that? So how do we know when just to bear with someone's sins and cover it over and when to rebuke? Well, there are several things to consider. And this is where we're going to get a little topical here. Because I think this is so misunderstood in our churches. And that's the reason so many churches split. And that's why so many churches are divided and when churches split or when churches divide, it belittles the name of God. It also belittles what God has done in Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, which signals victory. He has reconciled us to himself and he's reconciled us to each other. So when we divide, that is false advertising. So it's crucial we understand something about what it means to hold one another accountable. 
First, there are several things to consider here. Should we rebuke this sin or not? Well, if you would, look back in chapter 6. We looked at this two years ago, in fact. I cannot believe it's been two years. But in chapter 6, verse 37, in perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, it used to be John 3.16. It's no longer John 3.16. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, what does Jesus mean there? Is he contradicting himself from chapter 17 where he says rebuke if someone sins? Well, let's first of all talk about what he does not mean. It does not mean that we turn a blind eye to the fault of others. Or we fail to discern in our brothers and sisters' lives. In fact, in Matthew's account, Matthew 7... Right after he says, judge not lest ye be judged, he says, do not throw your pearls before swine. And then he calls us to discern false prophets. Beware of the false prophets. So it would be impossible, utterly impossible to obey either one of these without using some kind of spiritual discernment. Indeed, there are times we have to judge. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. For what have, I had, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So there's a mutual accountability. We're a family. We're a family. And that's why when someone leaves a church, it should be for a very good reason. Like heresy. Outside of heresy... I mean, there, there may be other reasons. But we are a family. It's like a covenantal divorce when you leave a family. That means we're also accountable to one another. Okay? So what does he mean here? Well, notice in chapter 6, verse 41. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So this idea of a speck. Your brother has a speck in his eye. Okay. And you've got this, what is literally a load-bearing beam for a structure of a building in your eye. And so he's painting this picture. You, uh, you go up to your brother who has a speck in his eye. And you've got this huge tree sticking out of your eye. And you say, hey, uh, excuse me, brother, but you've got a little speck right there in your eye. And he looks at you and, you say, and he says, uh, could, could, could you back up a little bit? Well, well, sure, but why? He said, because of that thing that's sticking out of your eye. It's like a tree. It's massive. And so the first principle when we think about rebuking is have we examined ourselves? Have we examined our own hearts? We have such a tendency to exaggerate the sins of our brothers and minimize our own sins. And yet, he goes on and says in verse 42 in Luke 6, How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eyes. 
You hypocrite. He says that's hypocrisy. First take the log out of your own eye, and here it is. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And so we first examine ourselves, and then we go to our brother. A second question we need to think about is, before confronting someone, how sure am I that I am right about this person's sin? That's a very important question. In those instances where right and wrong are not fully clear, it's usually better to drop it. And in that case, 1 Peter 4 verse 8 holds, love covers over a multitude of of sins. And if it's a real issue in this person, trust me, it will raise its ugly head again. So if you're not sure that you're right, keep your mouth shut. Thirdly, before confronting your brother or sister with their sin, ask this question, how important is this? How important is it? I mean, we don't just confront them over everything. You see them driving down the interstate and you're going 65 in the 65 mile zone. And then there's Lucille who used to drive and she's going 80. By the way, that's why I drive her to church now. Do you exercise church discipline on that? No. Unless that person is getting tickets every day. Ask how important is this issue? And there are sub-questions to ask out of this. First of all, is the person's sin bringing dishonor to God? Is this person's sin belittling the name of God? Then in that case, a failure to rebuke is a failure to care about the Lord's glory or even your brother's holiness. A second question to ask, whether it's important, is the other person's sin damaging your relationship with him or her? In other words, maybe let's just say an example, this person is a slander. And so you avoid that person because you know that person is just negative and slanderous and a gossip. Or maybe they've said something harmful about you. They've done something harmful to you. And so you kind of avoid them like the plague because... Of that sin. So is that person's sin damaging a relationship with him? We can't afford that. Not in the people of God. We are an advertising program to a lost and dying world. We can't afford to have that. We need to be more jealous for the glory of God. Thirdly. Is the other person's sin seriously hurting others? You're not showing love by letting that sin persist. Fourth, is the seriously hurting himself? If you see a Christian, a brother or a sister engaging in sin that's going to destroy him, and you say, well, that's his problem. It's not mine. That's extraordinarily unloving. And it's loveless religion that's the scandal. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together, writes, 
Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. We call it tenderness. We call it grace and love. You're consigning that person to his sin. That's cruel, he says. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Finally, as we consider, is this sin important enough to address? Is the person's sin an often repeated pattern? Is it something you see over and over in his life? If that's the case, that means he or she is enslaved to sin and needs help. He needs help. And that's why we address it. You ask yourself, is this typical? Or if it's out of character, you perhaps may want to let it go. A fourth question we want to ask concerning whether we rebuke sin is what do wise people around me counsel me to do? Now, we've got to be very careful here because we have the sinister capacity to gossip in the name of prayer request. I've got a prayer request, brother, it's just between you and me. But yet there is a biblical principle. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. It may be that you seek the counsel from someone who does not know the person you're considering rebuking. Or it may be that you approach some of the leadership in the people of God. Some of the spiritual leaders. So there is a biblical counsel there that we need to consider. Fifth, are you aware... That the offender has something against you. Jesus says in Matthew 5, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go be reconciled to your brother. And then offer your gift. We can't ignore it by saying, well, that's his problem. Scripture repeatedly tells us to pursue peace with others. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Romans chapter 12. And if you decide to let an offense go, don't bring it up again. Don't bring it up in your prayer group. Don't even bring it up with your spouse. Let it go. Because when you continue to talk about it, it just makes it big again. It's like blowing air in a balloon. But in many cases, there is a call to rebuke. So how do we do it? Well, let's just briefly, and it'll be on the screen, look at Matthew chapter 18. Maybe the most under-emphasized text in the 21st century church, at least in America. This is the classic text on church discipline. We got away from it in the 20th century because we became very infatuated with growing numbers rather than the purity of the body of Christ. Now notice in chapter 18 of Matthew, this is the first time, or in this section, really started in chapter 16, that the church is mentioned in the New Testament. And he says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. Now, the first principle here, when you're calling someone to account for their sin, you've determined this is 
something I must do is that you go. Jesus isn't complicated here. There's some texts that are less clear than others. But how do you make that vague? He says, go. Go and tell him his fault. So you've established the need to rebuke. Here's what you do. You go. You don't fret. You don't stew over it. You go and you take care of the issue. And in this case, it says if he sins against you. Well, Luke's account tells us if he sins, period. The kind of sin we talked about earlier. So it may not be sin against you. But if it's sin in the body, the kind that's important enough to address, we are responsible to one another. That's so far into our thinking. I realize that. But that's what Jesus says. Go. Now, this goes against the the culturally conditioned sensibilities of the Western church because of hyper-individualism. When I say hyper, I mean the kind that the Bible knows nothing of. That's why we're not committed to local churches. That's why people uh, just kind of float around because they don't understand that we're the community of God. We're the people of God. The angel, we're on display to the angels, Ephesians 3.10. And so, someone comes to you and says, Brother, I need to talk to you about some concerns. You say, this is none of your business. And that makes sense to us because we've been enculturated to individualism. But we need to allow our individualism to be chastened by the Word of God. We don't even know it. We don't even realize how enculturated we are. Aristotle once said, if you want to ask, if you want to know what wet is, you don't ask a fish. Because that's all a fish knows. We are hyper-individualistic. And so he says to go. You know, the, the ma- majority of people deal with conflict of one of two ways, or perhaps both ways, given the circumstance. Either they blow up. You know people like that? Maybe you look in the mirror and you know someone like that. You just blow up. That's how you deal with conflict. Or this passive, aggressive kind of just withdrawal, which is just as ungodly and just as destructive. What people often do, instead of dealing with it biblically, trusting that Jesus knows what he's talking about, he's good at what he does, he's Lord. They go to another church. Or they plant a church and just pray no dysfunctional people come to that church. Now, in going, Jesus says you keep the circle small. He says, between you and him alone, take out every pen you have and marker and underline that. Twenty shades of color need to be on between you and him alone. I just can't understand the Bible. It just isn't clear to me. Is that not clear? Here's how you deal with sin in the body. If someone has a problem, you go to that person between him and you alone. So when someone comes to you and says, man, I've got an issue with someone. What should you say? 
Have you gone to that person? That fuel that they're wanting from you, if you don't offer it to them, maybe the fire will go out. Have you gone to that person? Well, you don't, they're not going to hear me. Then you're not trusting Jesus on what he says about how to deal with sin. In fact, don't take the excuse from the person. Take them to Matthew 18 and say, trust Jesus. He created the heavens and the earth. He knows how to handle issues within the body. So we go. The second principle, if necessary, if this person does not hear you over a period of time, I don't think, I think it may require more than just one going. It may take several weeks or months of dealing with the issue. Jesus says, if he does not hear you, he says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence. That's not to gang up on the person, by the way. It may be those other two or three discern sin in you. So they serve as an arbitrator and they recognize that guy's not the only problem here. There's two sides of this problem. And so that per, those two or three witnesses can serve as a mediator, an arbitrator, okay? And so two or three go, preferably leaders, spiritual leaders, those who are spiritual, Galatians chapter 6. Maybe that you call uh, one of the leaders within the body. And that's what you do. But let's say they don't hear them. Now, typically at this point, if you're dealing with believers, there's going to be repentance. That's the mark of a Christian. Okay? Rarely does it go to the corporate level. If you're dealing with believers. Because the mark of a Christian is repentance. It's the vital sign of the new birth. But if it gets to the point where this person has not even heard the two or three witnesses that come along you, there is another step. And that step is to pursue public church discipline. You ever been a part of one of those services? It's very painful. It's very painful. But sometimes it's necessary. Notice, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. This is the last resort. But it is a resort. This begins with the leaders calling a members-only meeting. Okay? And the leader standing up, the leader standing up and say, John Doe has been approached about his sin of adultery, let's say. He's been approached personally, individually. Two or three leaders have gone. And he will not hear them. And we have established the fact that he indeed has committed adultery and is unrepentant. So we would ask you as the body to keep this in here and pray every day for his repentance. And over the course of time, if John Doe does not hear, you treat him like an unbeliever. You remove his membership. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Of course, Jesus knew this was going to be painful. Of course, it's painful. It's a last resort. 
So he follows this with verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is encouragement. The promise here is that God will use your faithfulness to church discipline to bring about his purposes. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. And then he follows this in verses 18 and 19, or 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, every, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my earth, Father in heaven. This isn't talking about your small Bible study. We tend to take that out of context. It's talking about church discipline. Now, I think the principle applies to your small Bible study. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, I am present. I'm covenantally present. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will work through this to bring about God's glorious purposes. He will even bring about restoration and repentance through this. You see, church discipline is not cruel. It's hard. It's like when you're a kid and you get spanked. It's, it's hard, but it's not cruel. Okay? It's loving. We as disciples know better than anyone the devastation of sin. The cross is the supreme example. The illustration of illustrations of how devastating sin is. And that's why Jesus is giving us these words. He's just weeks out from demonstrating in HD the heinousness of sin as he takes the wrath of God for sinners. God's anger and judgment, which is a holy and righteous and loving and good anger and judgment, will be poured out on his son as our substitute. How can we take sin lightly in light of that? And if you're an unbeliever this morning and you have never fled to Christ, don't take your sin lightly either. Take it as seriously as God took it when he nailed his son to the cross. And if you'll repent of your sins and flee to Christ in faith and confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner and the wages of sin is death and you have paid that wage through your cross. And you've been raised from the grave for my forgiveness. The Bible says no matter what you've done, you'll be forgiven. You'll enter into the covenant people of God. Flee to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. It's a hard text.